Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm joined by Dr. Saroj Narala. He's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Canada. He's talking about a new paper looking at whether or not we can do randomized control trials for all of these cancer drugs we approve on the basis of single arm uncontrolled data. Below, I'm going to put links to three papers we talk about. And... Well, this paper is good, but unfortunately, in the course of our dialogue, we had one internet hiccup. The internet went away for a while. I've done my best to mend it, but please forgive me. So with that, I introduce Saroj Narala. I'm back in plenary session, virtual edition. Unfortunately, it's just virtual edition. I'm joined by the great Saroj Narala. Dr. Narala is associate professor in my favorite place, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Saroj, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Vinay, for your invitation. Uh, I've always been an admirer of the type of work you do uh, and the things that you bring up in your podcast. Uh, I think these things were discussed in isolation by a handful of people before, but you really have brought these things in in the forefront uh, of academic discussion. So thank you for what you do. And obviously, it's an honor to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for for saying that. Um, I think uh, I admire your work as well, because I think you and I are both interested in very similar issues, of course. And listeners are going to learn that through the course of this podcast. But um, I certainly don't pretend to, you know, to to know everything about this space. And I learned a lot along the way. And I learned a lot from your from your recent paper. Thank you for and, saying that. Thank you. Yeah. And so um, I don't know. Well, well, first I'll just I'll just say how I got. I, I I was looking online, and then I saw. I think you tweeted it, or somebody quote tweeted it, and then I saw this paper, and I said, "Damn it." This is so good. This is so good. And I said, how come this is not a plenary session discussion? And I said, it ought to be. It ought to be because it's really one of the most interesting papers I've read in a long time in cancer drug policy. And you know me, I read a lot of cancer drug policy papers. So first, I want to commend you for that. And so that's what brings you here. But first, I want, why don't you tell listeners a little bit what your clinical practice is like? how you spend your clinical time and, and your yeah. research interests. And then we're going to jump into this paper, which is about RCTs and cancer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and thanks for noticing the paper. I, I thought nobody's going to read it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I am a medical oncologist. I am working in Cancer Care Manitoba, University of Manitoba for a few years now. Uh, my clinical focus is mainly breast cancer uh, in outpatient setting and all solid tumors in, in inpatient setting. Uh, and I do some cancer policy work, uh, drug approval, drug regulation type things, uh, and and more recently, uh, some work in global oncology space. So that's who I am in a nutshell. That's who you are. And um, 
And uh, I think uh, I think people will be reading your paper, especially when I'm when I'm done talking about this. Here's it. Here's what it's called: feasibility of randomized control trials for cancer drugs approved by the U.S. FDA based on single arm studies. Your first author is Ritberg, Rebecca Ritberg, and you can tell us. Yeah, yeah, I had planned to bring her, but she 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 was a fellow here. She has transitioned to more training uh, to a different province, uh, so I couldn't get her in. But yes, that's led by uh, Rebecca. And your middle author is Peter, who I think is your section chief, is he not? He is. Uh, he is uh, not. He was previously a section chief. He is the chief medical officer of Cancer Care Manitoba at present, okay. and he's also interested in these kind of works. So this is interesting. So you know, you and I both know. Maybe let's just remind the listeners. The listeners need to know. USFD is approving a lot of cancer drugs, and as they tell us, more drugs means more innovation. They like to remind us, more drugs means more innovation. What else could it mean? Obviously, not better drugs, which is what you know you and I care about. Yep. Of the drugs they approve, you know, one third are based on progression-free survival, which in a randomized study typically. One third overall survival in a randomized study with a median OS of about two point one months ish. Mm-hmm. And then one third based on response rate, which means you know, we give drugs to 100 people and it's what percent have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. And people who do those single arm response rate studies, they have lots of reasons why they didn't do a randomized control trial. And you, in this paper, you're interrogating one of those reasons. But I wonder if you might explain how you came to think of this idea. It's so clever. That would be a good segue to, to start this. So, yeah, first of all, I think I should uh, start by clarifying something that mm-hmm. is likely to be misunderstood about, about this paper uh, from the outset, because the misunderstanding in the primary argument will only lead to further, you know, more misapprehension, and things like that. So the idea of the paper is not to go against uh, FDA's accelerated approval pathway itself. Uh, in fact, I'm a strong believer that this pathway is a remarkable asset that FDA has, and uh, this can offer tremendous value to, to millions of patients, no doubt about that. So the accelerated approval pathway itself is not a problem. The problem, in fact, lies in the way that's, uh, that this uh, pathway, accelerated approval pathway, is currently being utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, as you like to say, it's not the fault of the aeroplane itself, but the yeah. number of seats that the, the yes. company you yes, know, puts it in and makes yes. and creates <laughs> creates a problem of of this miracle that we have of you know a fl- flying a vessel right so what I have observed Vinay and and you obviously have observed as well is that whenever a new government program or a new service uh, to the public are started uh, they are generally started out of necessity and uh, there is usually a genuine impetus to start something new of service to the public. And it holds true not only for healthcare or or cancer drug approvals, but also in other aspects of of, uh, the state, like some social programs, some economic programs and whatnot. But then when such programs are started, they eventually take the life of their own. There will be people whose livelihood will start to depend on that. uh, And, you know, politics comes into play and there will be people who you know whose career will depend on either supporting or not not supporting or opposing such programs so so something that's initially started for a certain purpose will evolve over time and and start serving a different purpose and i think i think accelerated approval pathway is one such programs uh, as you are aware and your listeners are definitely most of them are aware that uh, F- the accelerated pathway was uh, started out of necessity and with very good intentions in around 1992 when there was a need for rapid approval of the you know ad- hiv aids drugs uh, which couldn't wait for for a long time until the generation of uh, good evidence so 
So that gave birth to accelerated approval uh, as a temporary provision. Uh, the idea was that the patient will have access to promising new drugs uh, when there is a reasonable preliminary evidence. And in FDA's own word, uh, if, if there is a you know, reasonable likelihood that, uh, that the drug is going to uh, improve outcome the meaningful outcomes. So it was all well and good. Uh, and it did work without any major hiccups for almost a decade or so until you know mid 2000s or mainly after 2010, when the tsunami of cancer drugs you know, started to overwhelm medicine over as a whole, right? Uh, so now the program was initiated in the best interest of the patients who are you know, dealing with terminal illness and we we really needed to do something uh, about it but you know um, they they do not have uh, and and people who did not have any good uh, good treatment options but the program right now is uh, not being used in the way way uh, you know it was initially designed uh, and it has now been used as uh, you know uh, an excuse to bring marginal or even questionable interventions in the market uh, as, as you can as you have been speaking in your podcast so uh, our study was really a thought experiment uh, uh, so in not too distant future cancer drugs were approved based on you know, reasonable evidence from randomized controlled trials uh, but uh, that that has been compromised uh, conventionally uh, single arm studies uh, in in drug development process was exclusively for conduct of phase one clinical trials uh, to establish efficacy and, and find the dose. Uh, it was not designed for uh, you know, regulatory approval at, at all. Uh, even, even when I was a fellow uh, less than a decade ago, regulatory approval based on single arm study would be, would be rare to find. Um, but the world seems to have changed in the last few years drastically. Uh, as you can see there, you can see very high proportion of new cancer drugs that are approved based on single arm study of say 31, 42, 29 patients uh, based on response alone. And even you can remember from your fellowship years a few years ago that uh, to see a New England journal paper of a brand new drug based on single arm study was a rare thing to happen. Uh, and much worse to tout such papers as practice changing was, was even, you know, even uh, not heard of too much. So I think, uh, so, so I guess, uh, I, I think I have spoken too much about the rationale. So yeah. I'll jump right into, right into, so uh, most common rationale that is uh, provided to FDA and to us for, to defend uh, a, um, a new drug approval based on single arm studies are a few rationales. A, the, randomized controlled trials are not feasible because there are not enough patients. B, they, it takes a long time. Randomized controlled trial takes a long time. So it's not worth waiting. And three, uh, C, uh, there is no good alternative for the, for the disease conditions. Uh, so, uh, and, and related to that, randomizing patients to placebo would not be ethical. So we just wanted to empirically test the, whether these things are, are true or, or they're just plain lies. So what we did was we looked at uh, all cancer drugs that were approved in the last decade, that decade, that is uh, 2010 to 2019, based on response rate and single arm studies in, in um, solid tumors. And then we designed hypothetical uh, randomized control trials to assess um, theoretically how much of those, how many of those approvals would be possible uh, to be approved based on based on randomized control trials rather than a single arm study alone. 
So for each of the uh, drug approvals on the basis of uh, single arm studies, uh, we designed randomized control trials to assess the feasibility of performing that RCTs, both in terms of statistics as well as pragmatic in a pragmatic way. Uh, in terms of statistics, we looked at power and sample size needed to detect the expected difference. Uh, and in, in the real life setting, we looked at feasibility of conducting those trials uh, on time and whether there would be enough number of eligible patients to complete it. Uh, then, uh, so that was that was what we did. And power and sample size calculation for a randomized control trial is, uh, uh, was done to really match how contemporary uh, oncology clinical trials are, are done, which and is not that- the control arms? So, yeah, so, so I'm coming to that. So uh, uh, as long as we have a few variables, we uh, can design trials. So what we need is the, what is the standard of care? What is the current existing standard of care? So we've, we got that from, uh, from review of literature for that disease condition, whatever is being used before, before the uh, drug approval based on the single arm study. Uh, and then uh, the single arm studies offered us with uh, what to expect of the new intervention. And then we got the Delta, which, which helped us to uh, design the trial. And that will take care of the statistics part of the uh, part of designing randomized control trial. And the next question is feasibility, which depends on the number of eligible patients that we can accrue and the time it takes to accrue. For that, we use SEER database, uh, which will give you both the incidence and mortality of of the cancer types. And to be conservative, our assumption was um, that we calculated the number of patients uh, um, that, that might be eligible based on uh, death rate rather than incidence. Okay. So, so, and, and we assume that, you know. Using a lot of our papers, right, yeah. Exactly. And uh, we assume that less than 5% of uh, patients that die of the specific condition would, uh, would accrue to the trial. So should I go to the result now? Uh, uh, in one second, I think, yes. I think you hit so many good points. I just want to highlight them so the listeners have them sure. on their mind. Number one, the FDA approves a lot of drugs based on response rate, probably one in three drugs. Number two, accelerated approval is something you philosophically agree with. However, it's important that we do randomized control trials at some point to really know if new drugs are better than alternatives. Mm -hmm. Number three, just because a drug has a, this is maybe a point we didn't make, but we should make explicit, just because a drug has a better response rate than another drug, doesn't always mean people live longer or live better with the new drug versus the older drug, which is why we really need the randomized controlled trials. We can all think of examples of really great response rates that went nowhere. Uh, one drug I think of is iodine-131 tocitumumab or Bexar, uh, yes. the lymphoma drug. And it, now it's off the market, even though the response rate is like 65%. Um, so that's an important point. Response rate doesn't always mean the winner. And number four, I think the, the clever part of your paper is you say that there are these excuses people give, like why we can't do a randomized trial. And what you're saying is, well, let me give you the most credit possible. We're going to assume a very small percentage of people who, who would otherwise die could enroll 5%, which is kind of roughly in line with what U.S. enrollment is in papers by Kerry Gross and others over the years. 5% of people will enroll. Let's assume we're doing this randomized control trial measuring a real outcome. And let's assume that the control arm is gonna do as well as it's gonna do and your drug will do this much. So what, could we do those randomized trials? I think that's the premise of your paper. Yes, yes, very well summarized. I couldn't have uh, said it better. So thank you for now the summary. Yeah, tell me what you're saying. 
yes. So some of the results will shock your 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 listeners. <laughs> so there were 171 approvals uh, during the 10-year period, and 31 of them were based on single-arm studies in solid tumors. So we didn't uh, take into account hematological malignancies because uh, response in hematological malignancy means uh, it, it it gets complicated. So we we focused on solid tumors only, and which is also my my area of expertise. Um, so as expected, there was a steep increase in the approval a number of approvals in uh, based on single arm studies from zero approvals in 2010 to eight approvals in 2019 so there was a steep increase uh, which is really a factor that that raised our curiosity into looking look that means more person. innovation sir more innovation more, more, more and more innovation <laughs> more discoveries uh, more discoveries that uh, you couldn't wait for randomized control trials so uh, all were approvals for metastatic disease, not, not for curative setting, and 100% of the studies reported overall response rate. Uh, only about half of them reported duration of response, and only 20% reported progression-free survival, uh, about 20% also uh, reported overall survival. So only one-fifth reported time to event outcome, and only half reported duration of response. Mm -hmm. 100% over, uh, overall response. Uh, the size of uh, uh, single arm studies ranged from about 23 patients in one trial to quite sizable trial of 400 over 400 patients. But uh, a single arm study, wow. Yeah, yeah, 400 patients single arm study. And you argue that you cannot do randomized control trial yeah, for that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, mostly it was in the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, 15 of them had less than 100 patients, and many of them had less than 50 patients. And almost 80% of the approvals were accelerated approval. There were a uh, few approvals that were full approvals. So a rarity of cancer had no correlation with a single arm study, which is, uh, you know, presented as one of the rationale for conducting this. So, let, let me just, yeah, let me just pause that one again. Yes. What you're saying is the incidence with which a cancer occurs, its rarity, had nothing to do with whether or not they were doing single arm or no. randomized. No. And actually, you're the second person, to my knowledge, who showed that. I actually think there's an old FDA paper by Rick. Pazder, where he showed his incidence fell from six per 100,000 to one per 100,000. There's no difference in the fraction of approvals that were based on uncontrolled data. So I think- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously he's a respectable person, but some of the statements about uh, single about accelerated approval that he has said, uh, there are there are things to be can be that can be said in a different forum probably. Anyway, so moving on. So for example, lung cancer. You, you, I don't think any any person who treats uh, cancer, uh, an oncologist would call lung cancer a very rare cancer that you cannot do uh, that do a randomized control trial on. But you know, about twenty two percent of the approvals um, uh, were were in lung cancer based on single arm study because you couldn't do the do randomized control trials that was followed by 20 percent of the studies which were urothelial carcinoma you know uh, pelvis of the kidney uh, bladder and the lining so 20 percent of the approvals. ovarian cancer 10 percent of the approvals so take a moment to think about it if we start considering lung cancer bladder cancer ovarian cancer as being rare enough to justify approval based on single arm study i guess we're in in you know quite a shaky ground to to begin with in the whole issue of and somebody arm. might say that these mutations are rare but even if you multiply the mutations by the raw number of people with new lung cancer it's still massive right? i have given the number in in the second paragraph of discussion if your uh, if your readers want to read so uh, we did look into we did specifically when we calculated uh, visibility, we did look into the incidence of that particular because so EGFR, ALK, rearrangement, and ROS1, they constitute 
constitute 17%, 7%, and 2% of all uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And in absolute number, that translates into 19,000 patients, 8,000 patients, and 1,200 patients per year in the United States alone. So, you know, 19,000 patients is not... Like Hodgkin's is 10,000, and we have like a thousand randomized trials. And no, no, exactly, exactly. So, so, so that that tells you how how uh, you know shaky the ground is. Yeah. Uh, so almost half of the approvals uh, consisted of immunotherapy, uh, and we can talk as long as we want about the significance of response rate in immunotherapy. Uh, now, uh, something that will probably shock your uh, lis- uh, listeners, Vinay, is the following: there were a few drugs. Uh, that were approved despite the evidence that existing therapy used for that condition uh, might result into a superior outcome, even for response rate, uh, compared to the new drug assessed uh, based on single arm study. And, and the approval was given. Yes. Whereas, you know, there was there was alternative, which had a higher had response rate with a better response rate. Yeah. And, no, and, yeah, Allison Haslam and I looked at that once previously in, a, in a, a paper. We didn't do this extra step that you've done, but we did find like maybe one in five of these drugs approved single arm. There's a better drug out there that you're already using. Exactly. Yeah, and, and this really throws cold waters in the face of whole drug approval process, to be honest, because, you know, and, and there can be reasons where you would want to do that if, if the new drug has certain advantages, like for in, in, in terms of convenience, you know, route of in, uh, administration, other toxicities. But, but we also looked at that and did not find uh, that uh, the new drug would have any, any advantages uh, on that regard either. So another point worth noting is that I really think the re- overall response rate alone is, is uh, incomplete information. Yes, it does tell you that uh, there is some biological activity of the drug, uh, but in a non-comparative, fa- uh, non-comparative fashion. And it tells you very little about how helpful the response is going to be to the patient. The response could last two weeks, one month, one year, two year, uh, you know, and each of those duration will have major impact on how you how you view the drug. Uh, but, uh, you know, about 50% of the single arm studies did not provide that information, meaning that duration of response was not reported in half of those patients. So, if you report, uh, you know, I don't think duration of response would be a difficult thing to measure and report. Yeah. And in my opinion, it would actually be, you know, important to report duration of response if you're uh, trying to use single arm studies for drug approval process uh, yeah. with a clean heart. But uh, but that was not reported. Which is you know, one thing we should say is sometimes listeners have emailed me to say, what is the difference between median PFS and median DOR? And the explanation is, Median progression-free survival is the time until the 50th percentile patient in a study in one arm or the other has a progression-free survival event, which is either death or progression. Median duration of response is only in the fraction of people who achieve a response, which may not be everybody, maybe 10%, 20%, 30%. Just in that cohort, what is the median time until they have progression? in that yeah. cohort, right? And so exactly. it's variable, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to complete the argument and to, to be fair to the other side, one genuine reason one wouldn't report duration of response is if the patients continued to respond and median duration of response had, been, had not been reached at the, time of, uh, at the time of reporting. But I don't think that was the case for any of the studies that we looked at here based on the timing of study conduction, based on the final study report and, and the FDA approval. So, so that was not the reason. I said, good. Okay, 
go now, on to the results. Yeah. 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 So now uh, moving on to the main results. Okay. The feasibility of randomized control trials. So we designed hypothetical uh, randomized control trials using three uh, primary endpoints uh, individually with duration, sorry, sorry, overall response rate, progression free survival, and overall survival, whenever those were reported, with overall response rate as primary endpoint. A median uh, sample size needed to conduct a randomized control trial was 206. And, and these were all uh, uh, designed based on conventional items like power of 0 0.8, you know, alpha error of 0 0.05. So what conventional contemporary uh, you know, trial design practice were, were used. Uh, so, and, and we have described that in the methods section. Uh, so we, you needed, so medium sam sample size to conduct uh, with uh, a randomized control trial with overall response rate was uh, 206 patients. Uh, this number is actually smaller than what was used for uh, uh, single arm studies, uh, single arm studies in one third of, of one the third trials. Smaller. One third, one third was smaller, yes. So we have to Which tells you that rarity of the tumor or lack of patients to enroll, uh, it's certainly not, not the reason <laughs> single arm study was so used for this. One trials. out of three of these cases, you have already enrolled enough people to have done the randomized control trial with that. There you go. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> and nor could we find any other reasons that would support, uh, you know, avoiding randomized controlled trials, right? And no, no other advantages like root of, as I said earlier, uh, root of administration or increased convenience or better cost. Those are not the reasons. Uh, so taken overall, we found that about 85% of the randomized controlled trials with overall response rate as primary endpoint could be completed within two years. Uh, based on less than 5% uh, of eligible United States patients being enrolled in such RC, let alone multinational uh, you know, uh, studies. We're, we're only talking about United States patients. Similarly, for progression-free survival, 19 out of 31 uh, single-arm studies uh, reported progression-free survival, uh, in addition to uh, overall response rate and uh, median sample size to conduct such a randomized control trial was 130. 95% uh, of such trials could be completed in equal to or less time than what was necessary for um, single arm studies. Wow. <laughs> wow. Almost all, 90%, 90% of randomized control trials, they would be completed within 24 months. Almost all. When you, when you put a, when you, when you analyze it this way, I feel like the, the conclusion is inescapable, which is that even if you believe there is a time and a place to use response rate to approve a drug, you are using it way more than that, because in many cases, it would have been faster, simpler, more informative for patients and doctors who have done the randomized trial. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're just losing your grounds. Like there is, there is no hiding. There is, there is no secret uh, that remains, you know. Uh, so uh, in terms of overall survival, similar was the story. Uh, only about seven out of 31 reported uh, uh, Overall survival data, median sample size to conduct a you know reasonably powered randomized control trial based on overall survival as the primary endpoint was 392 patients, so that was a little bit higher, uh, and 80 uh, percent. So accrual for 80 percent of the patients with overall survival endpoint could be completed within the time frame needed to complete the. Wow. Uh, respective uh, single arm studies wow. for those drugs. <laughs> yeah, and 100%, 100% of those trials with overall survival endpoint could be completed within 24 months based on how many patients we have for, for those trials. So even if we enroll less than 5% patients in the United States alone, 
Okay, and and uh, very few clinical trials currently are conducted in just one country, right? So so that opens up, you know, that that uh, makes you available uh, a lot more patients. So well, if anything, it would have gone faster. If anything, it would have gone faster. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So our claim is that basically replacing uh, most of the single arm study with with uh, randomized control trials would have been absolutely possible uh, in pragmatic sense, uh, not just in theory. Now, why do you think this is happening? Sure, yeah. So I think there is a number of things at play. Um, so first, I think it's the nature of the problem itself that it is in healthcare. Second is the incentive system uh, in that, that is in support of, of such practice in academic world. And third is that there is a strong and wealthy pharmaceutical industry uh, whose best interest is served by continuing such practice. So I think I'll speak briefly about each of these. So uh, now, if, if it was driven by profit alone, I don't think this practice would last very long. A car salesperson, for, for example, cannot deceive you for very long. Uh, housing market will not exceed uh, a, a person's ability to pay, right? So, so I think the combination of profit and apparent altruism that is embedded in, in this makes it, uh, makes it easy for manipulations. And I think so because, you know, humans are driven by emotions and availability of drug for a fellow human being who is dying is a powerful logic to sway even highly objective people. And objectivity tends to get lost when uh, you or your loved one is dealing with, uh, with some terminal cancer. So it's therefore uh, easy to create and sell altruistic story around, around healthcare. So I think that's one of the reasons. The other reason is uh, academic incentives that, uh, that are you know, aligned. Uh, the chances that you secure a you know, New England Journal of Paper as first author within the first few years of your faculty position, uh, it's, uh, it's best uh, if you just carry, carry the banner of a new and sexy drug company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's great if the drug is also helpful for the patient, but really it doesn't have to be that way. Um, what seems to be more important lately is that the drug is new, has some you know, noble mechanism of action, at least in papers, and the company is willing to risk uh, developing it. Uh, so that, that's all it is necessary, uh, rather than uh, the weight that, that the drug um, bears. So that is the disconnect that I'm talking about here. So our incentive are not aligned with uh, helping patients and improving drug development process overall. Uh, so I think that that is uh, one of the reasons. The other reason really is the power of, uh, and before we go there, the power of incentives to human should never be underestimated because, you know, it, it, it has direct, it's a direct hack of your reward system in the brain. If you, if you keep rewarding low value practices, if, you, if your next promotion uh, will depend on cheerleading a mediocre drug and forming unhealthy collaboration, uh, you can never expect novelty from your actions. Uh, you know, uh, to, to make a person noble, you have to reward the novelty. If you reward crookery, you will just produce a bunch of crooks. Uh, and you, for example, you know, you cannot, you cannot expect a mango fruit from an apple tree, right? Mm. So you have to plant mango right. tree for that. Uh, so research from, uh, from uh, as we know from research from some development psychology space that we humans are still uh, highly hierarchical organisms, right? So uh, you're, you're giving people the hit of dopamine and serotonin with that. Uh, you are, these are addictive chemicals that occur naturally in our brain. 
So you are expected to do exactly the things that uh, will, you know, readily improve your hierarchy in the academic world. Um, and that happens only if you, that uh, currently that is happening. If you lead a single arm study, uh, get your FDA approved, uh, you are automatically counted as a leader in the field instantly. So, so I think we need to be careful about how we align our incentives. So, so that's my second uh, thought why this is happening. My final thought is obviously the powerful pharma industry. Now, first and foremost, I should acknowledge that uh, uh, some of the most uh, you know, useful therapeutics have been developed by pharmaceutical company uh, without the pharma, you know, partnership of pharma. Uh, some of the discoveries would not see the life, light of the day, but you know, we should recognize, regardless of how noble a drug company may claim itself to be, uh, and I'm fine with accepting that that may be partly true, their primary motive is to uh, make profit. You know, their whole existence uh, depends on their ability to make profit, and, and you, you, you cannot just develop a drug and, and go, go bankrupt, right? You cannot expect that from, from a pharmaceutical company. And I don't blame industry for trying their hard to, to finding loopholes in drug regulation that will increase their uh, wealth. Honestly, Vinay, uh, if, if you make me the CEO of Novartis or Pfizer, I would do exactly the same thing or even do even more things in my capacity that I might know more to increase the profit of the company. Uh, that behavior is not surprising at all. Uh, any any other behavior would be would be unnatural. So the tragedy lies in in that academics uh, who also appear to blindly support the motive of industry, and it's the misfortune uh, that is facing drug development in in contemporary medicine. Academics are supposed to be gatekeepers for for such wrongdoings, and I blame the leaders in my fraternity academic medicine for not recognizing the fact and you know to be honest turning a blind eye because uh, i know they are smart they know they know these things so yeah that's uh, that's all um, all i have um, and the, the, what what i would say before we part is uh, i guess uh, i would say that pharmaceutical industry is an essential partner in in drug development and uh, we can make the best of that partnership if we keep a respectable distance between each other. The relationship has to be mutually uplifting rather than abusive. Um, I think the chances that the relationship will become abusive increases if you start make, you know, being too uncomfortably cozy uh, you know, a relationship between, between the two. Or in other words, you can still contribute meaningfully to drug development and help patients with, with healthy partnership because uh, you know, I, I, I guess I should use the word um, prostitution has never been regarded as respectable attribute in our race in the history. And that's for a reason. And although it might be tempting uh, at times compared to monogamous relationship with academia, I think you lose prestige and you lose, uh, you lose uh, all the, you know, your, your virtues by doing that. George Narola, it's a fascinating paper. I'm going to direct listeners to it. And uh, thanks for taking time and putting up with our technical difficulties. And it's great to speak with Pleasure. you. Great to speak with you. Pleasure, Vinay. Thank you for inviting. I'm back in Plenary Session Studios. I'm joined by Dr. Mani Moyudin. Dr. Moyudin is Assistant Professor at the University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Center, and he is an expert in all things multiple myeloma. Mani, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me here, Vina. It's good to be back. It's good to, it's good to have you here. You're a, a crowd favorite when it comes to multiple myeloma. 
So uh, here I am in makeshift plenary session studios. It's gotten a lot more contraptions all over the place as we move into the world of video. Um, Mani, uh, uh, how have you been doing? I've been doing great. I'm loving life here in Utah and uh, life in Utah, huh? getting settled in my new job. And it's good. It's uh, scary. You know, I've been seeing all these MGUS patients. And as a, as a fellow, I would feel very comfortable being like, oh, this is just MGUS. And now as an attending, I'm like, I have to think very, very carefully. It's just a whole new layer of uh, responsibility. Uh, yes. All the MGUS rests on your shoulders now. <laughs> it's a big burden, but yes, it does. You know, um, we're going to talk about let's talk about myeloma in general, and then we'll record our next segment about the paper and we can release that on the data. But let's talk about myeloma in general. You know, multiple myeloma is interesting. Um, historically, the definition of multiple myeloma was end organ damage, was CRAB criteria. But then your friends in the Inter International Myeloma Working Group, they changed the definition a few years ago, didn't they? That is correct. In 2014, the definition was expanded to include some cases with no CRAB criteria, um, but, uh, you know, meeting some other parameters. So if the if the bone marrow biopsy, you know, exceeded 60% plasma cells, or if the involved uninvolved light chain ratio was more than 100, or if um, you know there were certain MRI findings uh, as pertains to the to the bones, um, and uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was, and this was before my time, but you know, I think yeah, I think a lot of it was expert opinion and the consensus that beyond a certain point, it was felt that myeloma is you know inevitable, and if end organ damage is not happened yet, it will happen in the future. But, you know, again, high quality evidence backing those claims was, was probably not there. And, and we've all had in our practice, those exceptions. We've had patients who've been stable for years with this, you know, same, you know, high, high plasma cell burden or, you know, high kappa lambda ratio, but they haven't had an organ damage. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a little controversial, but it's, it's mainstream now. The It's called slim. So slim crap is now the is, is what we use to define multiple myeloma. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with everything you said. The only thing I will add is I think in cohort studies that if you have these slim criteria, you do not all inevitably progress into multiple myeloma, even with extended follow-up, even with three years, four years follow-up, there is a fraction of people that do not progress and we're treating them because of these new criteria. And I think the gold standard way to have validated their criteria would have been to randomize control trial treating at the time of slim criteria versus at the time of the 85% or 90% that would eventually develop multiple myeloma, but they never did that study because apparently in the modern world, you don't need to do randomized trials as often as you like. Yeah, so that's that's what I have my bone with it. Now let's talk about melflufin. Melflufin is a great drug because it's entirely novel and we've never seen anything at all like it. Isn't that fair to say, Mani? <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a you know a couple of small tweaks to a drug that's been there for a long time. So they've what's that drug? I've never heard of it. Melphalan. What is this melphalan? I've never heard of it. I never yeah, gave so it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. So they've tweaked melphalan in a way that um, it you know it's it has an amino peptidase attached to it. It's more lipophilic. So they say you know based on preclinical studies that I it's see. about fifty to hundred times more potent than melphalan. It sort of aggregates within the plasma cell yeah, and then releases its payload and you know, there's less, um, you know, toxicity beyond, uh, you know, beyond the hematological toxicity that we see. So that's, that's there. That's what they say that it's, it's easy to say all that when you've never tested it head to head against melphalan, right? <laughs> it's easy to say. <laughs> or, or any other chemo for that matter. You know, no, it's not just melphalan, you know, cytoxin or bendamustine. Or or 
Right. You know, you know, if you ran me and Usain Bolt on a hundred meters, I mean, the way I run, the stride I get, uh, it could, you know, in many ways it's better than Usain, but, and you obviously we've never tested head to head. You don't know what's better. You really don't know. It, it could be me. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. okay. So this drug was approved on the basis of an uncontrolled study with a single agent res- with a certain response rate. What was the response rate? Yeah. So the response rate, and I'm blanking on the exam, was 26 or 27. It was in the, it was in the twenties. Yeah. So not in myeloma, they say that's uh, that's the benchmark. They call it the right. benchmark. Right, right. So not a not a now not an amazing response rate. The other study was called Horizon. It was studied in a heavily, you know, relapsed refractory population. And yeah, they saw some activity, uh, you know, in the ballpark of 20, 20, 25, 26% response rate. So then they, you know, the FDA approved the drug based on, on this trial. Um, similar to how the FDA has approved some other drugs for myeloma based on your know, uncontrolled studies with similar ballpark response rates. And then what happened is that they did a randomized study, and this study is called the OCEAN study. Mm-hmm. So it's Melflufendex versus POMDEX. And you, know, you and I have spoken extensively about how POMDEX is not used anymore, and POMDEX is a bad control arm. Um, but and but you know the bar is low. So POMDEX is a bad control arm. It's yes. pretty easy to beat. You yeah. could argue that you know they they should have probably chosen a chemotherapy based control arm. Yes. You know, just like an alkylator, because like that's what you're trying to, to show that this alkylator, this new alkylator is better than the old alkylator. Yeah. But yeah, they chose POMDEX. So what happened is it's an interesting sequence of events that initially they you know they they, they uh, came up with a press release that. Um, the study met its primary endpoint and melflufen was uh, non-inferior to POMDEX. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so they didn't say that melflufen beat POMDEX, it was just non-inferior to POMDEX. Yes. And so, you know, that happens. And then a few weeks pass. And then in June, what happens is that there's, uh, the FDA actually asked for some additional data because some data was actually missing. The sponsor had not provided all of the data Oopsie. required for analysis. So that is a little, um, you know, that's a little scary. So when they got the additional oh, data, pharmaceutical? No, just kidding. Shout oh, out there for the for the geeks there. Okay, go <laughs> yeah. on, go on. So when they got this additional data, they found out that Melflufen actually did narrowly beat POMDEX based on PFS. All right. But the OS was numerically much worse uh, in Mel- the Melflufen arm versus the POMDEX arm. Now data is very sparse, so we don't exactly know um, a whole lot of details. The companies is planned to present their uh, their findings at uh, at a meeting later this year. I think it's the International Myeloma meeting that they're going to present it at. But they're saying it was because of differences in subgroups between you know POMDEX and um, and Melflufendex arms. But I don't know if I buy that. You know the bar was set low. Uh, the drug still had a lot of hematological toxicity, even though they say that it you know it, it sort of stays within the plasma cell. And um, yeah, with all of these other new things coming out, there's really isn't much of a role for Melflufen anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the other tragic aspect to this piece is um, so they designed. So you know, you know how you and I have spoken very passionately about you know two drug versus three drug trials right. and how they really shouldn't be doing them anymore, right? When you say when you say triplets are what you should be giving, then why are you designing a doublet trial? Right. Um, but what happened is, is that, so they designed, so they, they opened a randomized study called the Lighthouse study. Lighthouse. And the study actually enrolled, it, it, it was open at three centers in the United States. And, you know, so, you know, so we're, we were talking about three versus two. This was a three versus one study. So basically one arm gets deratumumab monotherapy, mm-hmm. and then the other arm gets dera plus melflufen plus dex. Mm. And it's powered for PFS. 
Hmm. You tell me, so you tell me what meaningful answers are, can we get from such a study? Wow. And wow. you're giving patients where, who could otherwise get on other trials, these patients could get CAR-T. Outside of a trial, these patients would at least get, you know, triplets. And you're giving them just DARA monotherapy in their control arm in the United States. Criminal. So that's a travesty. And, uh, you know, Aaron Goodman and I have been pretty passionately um, advocating against this. And it, it took, you know, worse overall survival from a previous study to finally halt this Lighthouse trial. So the Lighthouse trial has now been suspended for enrollment, which is good for our patients. Um, but it's a tragedy. So trial. Yeah, uh, like, I mean, three versus one, like what kind of answers would you get? Like, obviously, if you have three drugs with, per se, activity, activity you're, right. exactly, you're going to get a better response. They're going to lower the M protein more, but that is not the answer that's meaningful to to our patients or to or uh, or, or to us for that matter. A few, few thoughts on these topics. One, uh, Horizon, Ocean, Lighthouse. What are they, on a vacation at the beach when they're coming up with these names? What the <laughs> hell's going on? And the next thing should be called C-Cliff because you randomize patients to melflufin, uh, cytox, and melflufin, daratumumab dex versus just being shoved off the side of a C-Cliff, which is really the quality of their control arms. So that's what their C-Cliff is their next one, I suspect. And then maybe washed up on shore or uh, low tide. I don't know what they're, where they're going with these <laughs> melflufin studies. Next yeah. thing is, you know, we always talk about response rate in quote unquote, heavily pre-treated patients. And of course, the people who enroll in these studies often have progressed through many prior lines of therapy, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 prior lines. I've seen, I think I've seen 15 in one, something, 15 prior lines of myeloma therapy. Um, okay, and there's a lot of debate on what really constitutes a line, but I think we forget that another way to put that is these are people who met eligibility criteria and have lived long enough to have endured seven, eight, 10 prior lines of therapy. That biology is really indolent growth of that plasma cell clone. I mean, in many clinics, we don't have people live long enough to experience that many lines of therapy when myeloma takes off, when it really becomes rip-roaring myeloma. So in a lot of respects, generating this response in this highly curated cohort, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get that response rate in my clinic if I start to use it. Okay. So that's yeah. one point. Yeah, and then the, the next thing I wanna, unless you want to say something about that, say something about no, that. Go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I guess the next thing I want to say is about this, like the pressing need for randomization and Oceans shows you that um, I guess I have not yet seen, and maybe you know, that many of the people who receive Palm Dex have probably already received Imid and probably already received Palm. I don't know that to be true, but I, is that true? You have to be Palm. Well, yeah, so I, I don't think that they had received POM, but they definitely had received, you know, the, the both of them had received lenalidomide. And uh, and had yeah. all of them seen melphalan in, in auto setting? No, so not all of them had had a prior transplant. Yeah, so some of them may have never seen alkylators. Correct. And the yeah. responses have been more better. So based on press releases, the subset it works best in are those patients who've never seen an alkylator. Of course, yeah. who, Exactly, who are going to respond to, you know, they would have responded really well to melphalan or... Yeah, they're going to respond to an alkylator, yeah. So exactly. give them an alkylator like cytoxin or melphalan, you know? Um, I think we've seen this before. I remember that uh, that randomized trial of like venetoclax rituximab versus bendamustine rituxin in people who've already seen benda or uh, carfilzomib uh, dex versus velcade dex in people 60% had already gotten velcade, you know? So like, of course, a class of drug you've never gotten or a specific molecule you have not yet received will outperform giving the same class or the same drug over and over again, but it's not really an intellectual actually rigorous question. Um, I, I so agree. Yeah. yeah. This and is a tough space. Yeah. It is a tough space. And sort of echoing on what you said, 
Um, so, you know, those patients who make it to those, to that many lines of treatment, they are a selected population. If you look at, you know, this, you know, large data sets, on average, people make it to about three to four lines of treatment. Uh, so those who make it beyond that are, are, are a selected population um, who got there. A lot of our high-risk patients, you know, they just, you know, relapse quickly and then they, they don't make it to many to these advanced treatments. This is another side point you make me think about. You know, you point to the real world data, which is that people often can only uh, or only live long enough to to be treated with three or four treatments, which speaks to the nature of the biology. But then some investigator runs a randomized controlled trial of exquisitely chosen patients. And they say, you know, we didn't have post protocol care. It was very poor. But as you well know, only, you know, some small percentage of people make it to five lines of therapy or something like that. And what I want to say is that's a statistic that comes from average people in the clinic. But the people you enrolled in your study, those are not average people. You have picked the people who could have easily gotten five or six or seven lines of therapy, and you've deprived them of subsequent lines of therapy. That is a tragedy. So yeah. I see that all the time with these, you know, bladder cancer trials yeah. at all. And, and you know, that, that's true in myeloma trials as well. That speaks to my soul. And you and I have done work on this where we've shown that, you know, about half of patients in myeloma randomized trials go on to receive subsequent therapy. And these are highly fit patients going to, you know, institutions where they can get, you know, more treatments. And, you know, we've shown that when they do get treatments, those treatments are suboptimal. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty messed up, you know, just along those same lines where there was a editorial published recently in JCO um, about exacerbated Lendex versus um, Lendex. Um, in the relapse refractory setting, and how the triplet of exacerbation, tourmaline, tourmaline. Yeah, tourmaline, and how the triplet actually did not show an overall survival advantage over the doublet, mm-hmm. because you know post protocol therapy was transparently reported, uh-huh. people just got you know people got more effective drugs at some point yeah. in the disease course. They got more effective PIs. They got daratumumab, so it negated whatever you know minor effect exacerbation. is the shittiest proteasome inhibitor. Let's exactly. all add that to the mix, right? Exactly. Oh, and I remember they had that quote from the Princess Bride, which is I don't, you know something like I don't think that means what you think it means, and then they use that to mean something that I don't think they know what it means. What they it think was very it means. disturbing. Honestly, <laughs> it, it reminded me of an apocalyptic movie, not like the Princess Bride. I was like, this is apocalyptic. If we neglect overall survival in our interpretation, and we come up with all of these weird excuses to sort of justify it and and say that overall survival is meaningless and honestly that article i would say aged very poorly because you get this where this you know editorial that says os doesn't matter and then a few weeks later you have this milfluvin fiasco and os does matter uh, os you know, does matter without os you wouldn't have known that milfluvin was you know bad for our patients you wouldn't have known about venetoclax in myeloma. You wouldn't have known about Pembro without OS. But the other thing I want to say about this that really struck me is one of the, the points the authors were making was what exazomib Revdex versus Revdex. It, the exazomib did not add OS at the end of the day. It failed to show an OS benefit. Right. And so they were saying, well, you know, it's unrealistic to expect it to show an OS benefit. I was like, well, what about all the other drugs in this space? Carfilzomib, it got there. Dara, it got there, you know? And so why is exazomib getting, you know, all the other drugs were able to achieve it with subpar post-protocol therapy, of course, um, but your exasmib couldn't even get there. Um, it it's, uh, speaks to, I mean, I think what many of us believe, which is exasmib is, um, you know, it's the drug that you think about when you are dumb thinking about the other drugs. Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah. There are just, just some theoretical situations where one would consider it, you know, where you strongly prefer an oral drug, but even then it's just, it's really suboptimal. And this, entire, pre- this entire premise of, you know, you know, the oral drug being better is, 
And I think it's a it's a pharma ploy, and it comes with a lot of caveats. Like you know, they say Selenexers all you know all oral, but you know you need to schedule patients for IV fluids and give them you know IV supporting medications and you know medication to support their platelet count. It sort of negates whatever you know the oral benefit you're getting from Selenexer. They should uh, keep a shelf in the pharmacy. Here's what I'm going to put on my shelf, my little shelf. I'm going to put um, Elo right down there. I'm going to put Selenexer. I'm going to put Panabinistat. Um, and I'm going to put uh, uh, Ixazimib on that little shelf. I call that the shelf uh, that you don't really need to use that often. Uh, that's the shelf. Okay. And then I would put, I'm going to put Belantamab there too, because uh, uh, I'm not at the eye stuff. And we're going we're to easily su- surpass it in the next year with better BCMA directed there. Right. So I think until BCMA, so, I mean, if you ask me, you know, if I had to choose between belantamab, melflufen, and selinexer, I would choose belantamab. Knowing know. that- okay, that's like asking me to choose between right. your favorite dictator. <laughs> I mean, who's your favorite dictator? I, mean, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I completely echo your your thoughts. Where once we have better BCMA, safer BCMA drugs um, that are easily accessible, I, belantamab is going to have a very limited role, and it's a very tough sell. This ocular toxicity to patients, it's a very tough sell. Like at our institution, when I was at uh, the University of Kansas, we were trying to recruit people for earlier belantamab therapies, you know, for newly diagnosed and first relapse. And I nobody would enroll for it because you tell them these scary toxicities. If you tell them honestly about them, they're not going to enroll. I wouldn't enroll my father or, or myself on, you know, there was a chance of, you know, losing my eyesight, even if it's temporary, when there's so many other good effective treatments available. Doesn't make sense. Exactly. And, uh, and even the, op- the ophthalmologic visits alone. I mean, it's just a it's big headache. It is conversation. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about before we talk about our paper in a separate segment that we're going to release on the date of the paper. The last thing I want to talk about is, you know, there are so many ongoing BCMA or other CAR T trials in myeloma. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I see a value to moving CAR T up early in an uncontrolled study. What am I learning? What am I learning when I give induction chemotherapy and then just give CAR-T and then give auto if it fails? If there's no randomization, what am, what am I learning by giving a drug that I know is active? I know Idacel is active. Uh, by giving it earlier, I, I don't know if I could have given it later. Why are we doing uncontrolled trials of moving active CAR-Ts earlier? That's the question. Right. So that's a good question. And I, will t- and, I, and I agree with you that the benefit of an uncontrolled trial is limited in that setting. Let me give you the counter argument. So there, are, there, isn't, there is a, there, so there are controlled trials happening as well in this space. And I want to sort of highlight their flaws because they have big flaws as well. So there's a trial of Silta cell um, where, where Silta cell is being evaluated and essentially it's being evaluated in transplant you know, in patients who are not intended for, for early transplant, okay? And that's a very vague term. And that essentially means that, you know, these patients probably might have gotten transplant off of a clinical trial. So what happens is in one arm, patients get, you know, VRD, and then they get put on um, LEN maintenance. So you're de-escalating just to lenalidomide, all right, after, you know, eight cycles of VRD. Eight cycles of VRD and then two years of LEN. Correct. And then the other arm gets VRD followed by consolidation with SILTA cell, okay? (laughs) And And they get Revlimax. Yeah, yeah, uh, well, I don't think that you get Revlimax after that. Yeah. So, and you're powering this for PFS. So first of all, like, I feel like the true comparison, the true question, if you want to move it up front, you got to compare it to an auto. Uh, of course. That is what we do for fit patients. That's what we do. And if and you're fit enough to take a Silta cell, you're fit enough to get an auto. Exactly. So that is what I find in, in, you know, deeply problematic with this. And, you know, if Silta cell truly is that good, then we'll, you know, it'll, in a randomized trial, you'll show that it has, you know, it's, it's, it's safer and it's, 
might produce better emissions. But that's the that's you know we're not going to find that out here. So we're still going to be left in this you know conundrum about whether to do a transplant or whether to do CAR T for an eligible patient. So that is very problematic. But at least you know you know there are some studies that are randomized sure. with all the problems uh, in that space. Now there are oh, if it was if it was not still to sell but I to sell, then I think it would still be. Yeah, I don't know who's going to win that. <laughs> if it was I to sell, I really don't know. Maybe Len will beat it. You know that tells you something. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, what else you got? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, and then you know you can make a case that, and again, you you can randomize. You can do randomized trials even in high risk myeloma. It's been done before. You know, we've done ELO VRD versus VRD. Um, but you know, you can, you're. I think the current paradigm or the current thought process for most of the leaders in the myeloma community is that they're doing a lot of you know small phase two trials with novel concepts for high risk myeloma. Which I mean, I get treating high risk myeloma differently. I think it's that you know, we know that they haven't really you know done all that advances. So yeah, so there are some concepts and some trials out there where they're doing CAR T in an uncontrolled fashion in an earlier setting, but that's just for high risk disease, which you know it's a subset of a population. I, ideally, we should still have randomized those patients, but I get the concept. I mean, I get I get trying to come up with sort of new newer approaches, but for standard risk myeloma. Man, I, I agree. Like if you're giving them CAR-T earlier, it should be in a randomized setting. All right. It's- let me push back on this a little bit. Cause I agree with, uh, you know, we agree on the standard risk, the high risk thing. I don't know. This is just this thing in heme malignancies. We just do it in heme malignancies more than other fields right. uh, in, in DLBCL. Oh, we get our all worked up about MIC. And so we got to give EPOC. If you find a MIC, you give it EPOC. If it's a high grade B cell lymphoma, maybe you should give it EPOC, you know, instead of CHOP. And then we do, you know, a nice randomized trial to CLGB. And of course, they're just stone cold negative study. It didn't do, you know, EPOC doesn't do anything better than CHOP. But then we say, well, you know, in this subgroup, they do worse with CHOP comparing some historical subgroup, again, some cohort that's absolutely different because they were treated at top centers, you know, in this coordinated fashion. And we say, well, you know, EPOC's better. Then they get the flat iron data this year by Gaurav Gaul, uh, uh, Goyal, and uh, it shows that, you know, they're stone cold, the same in MIC rearrangement. And now in myeloma, you've got your high risk and everyone wants to give dual PI, revlimid maintenance. Exactly. Um, and in fact, the big debate in there is, do you give them carfilzomib rev or do you give them the portezomib rev? I mean, and I was like, nobody has randomized yet. And I will be honest with you, here's what I think the real root of all this is, is it's like a field that has not yet in, you know, there's one thing to understand that randomization can give you counterintuitive answers, but it's another thing to internalize that. And when you internalize that, you really are uncomfortable, I think, making proclamations about randomization. And it's easy to think worse disease needs more drugs, but we thought that before in other tumor types and we screwed up big time. And so I think randomization is the only way out of it, but we are in a moment of crisis I see in randomization, every time I suggest that there's something that can be done in a randomized fashion, people tell me that millions of reasons why you couldn't do it, all of which reveal that I'm not sure if they've really read more than two randomized trials in their life. I mean, I don't think they know anything about it, but okay, but be as it may. That was a fair summary. Um, we will, our time's gonna run out. So we're gonna stop this dialogue. We're gonna shift gears and talk about our paper uh, in press. But uh, you've been listening to Mani Moyudin. Uh, stay tuned for a future segment where we're gonna talk about a paper we have coming up on CAR-T and uh, no spoilers here. So thank you for doing this, Mani. Oh, my pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. 
The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.